Hey guys, welcome to Rankin' Vile, the podcast where we are ranking every horror movie ever made, and uh, this terrible quarantined week, uh, we are uh, we are joined uh, by a regular contributor and um, friend of the podcast, and sort of at least a fourth member of the podcast at this point with uh, Kyle Schlichter, um, Sarah Gailey. Hi, how's it going? Uh, good. How... How are you? How are how are you holding up during the quarantine? Completely insane. Yeah, yeah. It's been it's been a lot. We've y'all. We have so many fucking chickpeas. We have so many chickpeas. And we have so many beans, and I'm. We we didn't buy them for the quarantine. Actually, uh, Christina bought these chickpeas and dried beans in a fit of culinary ambition. I'm gonna say. 20, 35 years ago? During during the Carter administration, I think. Yeah, and they've been, they like, they moved house with us. They've been, like, kind of traveling around uh, and holding space in our cupboard. And so I decided that quarantine time was the time to fucking figure out chickpeas. And I did. I think I'm doing a really good job. Yeah. I just ate some, I made some homemade barbecue baked beans, and I ate them just now as a little, little lunchtime treat and they were uh-huh. uh, fucking delicious so you've just been you, you've chosen this specific moment in history to bean the fuck out yeah you got yeah. you got beans we're gonna fucking it's bean time i figured that as long as we're all stuck in close quarters with each other not being able to go outside and you know air ourselves out that would be the time to really bring legumes into our diet hey do you want to know something fucked up about uh chickpeas uh obviously you know how chickpeas also go by the name garbanzo bean? I certainly do. Well, the other day, uh, I was completely losing my mind because I've been deciding what to eat three times a day, every day, for mm-hmm. three weeks now. Um, and I was like, hey, wait a minute. Who the fuck is garbanzo? <laughs> Who, who's he? And why does he think he gets a bean all to himself? The, the titular bean. I got really upset about it, and I looked it up. Turns out garbanzo, just the Spanish word for chickpea. So you'd say that he wasn't a human being? I'm going to apologize for that. Um, please do not murder me in quarantine. Oh, I'm, I'm going to. And no one will know. That's the best part of this quarantine, gang, is that you can just tell people later, well, gosh, I don't know, you know, Ryan went outside for N95 masks and <laughs> never came never home. Came home. You know, listen, we don't, we don't advocate literal murder on this podcast. Speak for yourself. But, I mean, you know, sometimes uh, someone will need killing. And you've got no choice but to oblige them. Yeah, absolutely. Here's so- another fucked up thing about beans. <laughs> <laughs> this podcast is dedicated to bean facts now. <laughs> listen, listen, as a newfound bean advocate. All right, all right, okay. So, I'm going to start us off easy. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what town, city, or magistrate do you think Boston baked beans hail from? Magistrate? Um, Boston? You're correct! Boston! They come from Boston! Yeah. Hey, Ryan, what town, uh-huh. city, or magistrate? <laughs> I don't know what a magistrate is. I think it's like a governor. 
whatever, <laughs> what town, city, or magistrate, magistrate <laughs> goes by the moniker Bean Town. I, I would, I would, I would say Boston. You're, you're fucking right. It's okay. Boston. Boston is okay. Beantown. Nice. All right. Question okay. number three: What city, mm-hmm. town, or magistrate <laughs> is currently in possession of a gigantic statue shaped like a shiny bean? Um, you know what? I'm gonna go for I'm gonna go for the hat trick here. I'm gonna say Boston. You are incorrect. It's fucking Chicago. Oh yeah, yeah. The big, the big, the silver, the, the silver bean. Bean, the bean that Anish Kapoor made, and he hates it when people call it a bean. Here's a question: What the fuck did Chicago do to earn that bean? Um, listen, Chicago's done a lot of things, both for beans and for. Tell me one thing that Chicago has done to promote beans. Um. Listen, I was going to make a fart joke where it's called the Windy City, and then be like, "Beans make you fart," but oh, that's like no, that's like a that's a decent joke. That's like a C plus. Okay, joke. C plus, awesome. Chicago listeners, um, please tweet at Rank and Vile or email in and explain yourselves and why you think you deserve to have that bean instead of sending it to Boston where it belongs. So you think that there should be like an intercity war for the bean? I don't think there should be a war. I think Chicago should just admit what they did wrong and mm-hmm. give the bean to Boston. Or Anish Kapoor could like give just just like gift it to the city of Boston. Anish Kapoor could fall into a hole and die. That would also be great. Yeah, I mean he's he's apparently a, a pretty pretty big piece of shit. Oh yeah, he sucks real bad. <laughs> yeah, he's a bad man. Um, all right. So what what ghoul shit, if any, have you been engaged in during quarantine? Um, so much. Uh, we just mainlined all of the newer BBC adaptations of the Agatha Christie. Mm-hmm. mysteries um and then there were none uh ordeal by innocence the abc murders white horse and pale, pale horse pa- pale horse sorry and um the other one that has that guy from man in the high castle uh witness for the prosecution yeah there we go that's the one and i gotta tell you all of them whip ass they're so fucking good mm-hmm. um i every night we would sit down and be like hey you know what do we want to do tonight and i'd be like watch I'm in the really, really. yeah no it was pretty much you were feral man like we would get onto the couch with dinner and like all right what are we watching and then you would just like it was like an anime like you're it zoomed in on your eyes mm-hmm. and you were just like fucking egg at the crystal and the same screenwriter did the dublin murders show which is based on uh some of my favorite books the dublin murder squad books by ton of french and we also mainline that. So Sarah Phelps, screenwriter, my new favorite screenwriter, we have just been devouring her. And uh, I also just watched uh, last night, we watched the Grady Hendrix movie. Um, uh, sorry, I shouldn't say the Grady Hendrix movie. Just last night, we watched the movie that Grady Hendrix screen wrote, um, Satanic Panic. It rules ass. It's so fucking good. It's fucking great. That's that's a stay tuned, I think, for, for Rank and Vile. Like, we should, we should rank Satanic Panic at some point. It's... It's going to be high on the list. It's... I mean, the production is great. The effects are excellent, and they did a great job using the budget that they had, I think, to do really exquisite effects. Yeah, well, I mean, and they had Rebecca Romaine and Jerry O'Connell. Listen, I am 100% here for Rebecca Romaine as the leader of a coven of wealthy Satanists. She's got that MLM leader vibe. Mm-hmm. You know, it's those Lululemon Satanists, you know? Like, yep. they'll just, it's, they, they, they're interested in hot yoga and in raising Baphomet. We also get her in a sheer marabou-lined house <clears throat> robe, 
which frankly is what I think Rebecca Romaine just naturally exists in. And she's she's phenomenal. She's doing murders. She's ripping stuff out of people's chests. She's being mean to other moms. Mm-hmm. Like, I really love it. You know, the best place to do hot yoga is in hell. That's true. The humidity there. It's a lot. Um, I mean, I love Grady Hendrix as an author. He wrote, yeah. he's written my favorite horror books. He wrote, um... Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires, which uh, I believe comes out this year, if it hasn't already come out. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, it actually it comes out this month. Um, so pre-order that. It is some great fucking reading. Yeah, and he also wrote My Best Friend's Exorcism, um, Paperbacks from Hell. So <clears throat> we Sold Our Souls. We Sold Our Souls, which is a love letter to heavy metal. Um, he's a phenomenal horror writer, and he's apparently a fucking great screenwriter, too. Yeah, that movie is, that movie whips ass. And I, I think it's also, um, it kind of reminds me of how, um, what, ages ago there were people trying to, did, did you ever see that, um, Jack Chick pamphlet about D&D and the dangers of D&D? Oh, yeah, and the, the classic. There, yeah, and there were people trying to make a literal, uh, uh, production of that pamphlet, like, just making a movie version of, um, the, the dangers of D&D. This was basically, the tone was that, I think, where it was just, like, taking the satanic panic to its logical conclusion. But also, it's got all these fucking great, like, class metaphors, and it's very class-conscious horror because Grady Hendrix is always, always interested in that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no, it's it's fucking incredible. I um, have, for whatever reason during this uh, quarantine, I've really just gotten into the worst game in the world, Dead by Daylight. There's something, you know what it is? There's just, there's something soothing about being chased by by uh some asshole with an axe who wants to murder me in a way that like this this is a very immediate thing to focus on rather than the ambient fear of germs outside and of people just sort of dropping off and dying um i mean a guy with an axe you can see him coming yeah yeah not least because in this game they've got like a giant weird red light in front of them so that you can see them coming although i um while playing a killer i've learned how to do this stupid trick called uh moonwalking where if you're a killer, um, the, the people that you're chasing can see a big red light in front of you. Um, if you move backwards around a corner, they won't see you coming. So I've been... There's something amazing about being like, ah, I'm a scary killer guy. Plink, 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 <laughs> and just going going backwards. Um, I think one other thing that I Ring of listeners should know about our household during quarantine is what's going on with Tinkerbell, the dog. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I know that she's very uh, important to all of you. Her long national nightmare. Yeah, all of us are suffering, but none of us suffers as much as Tinkerbell. She has been chewing her paws so much that they're they're getting raw, and, you know, she's, she's hurting herself. Um, so we ordered little booties. Little tiny dog booties. For her to wear on her paws so that she can't chew them. The booties have grippy bottoms that go all the way around in case they get twisted so that she, it looks like she has little hooves. She does. They hold on with Velcro. She hates them with her entire life. Watching her, uh, the first time she had them on, watching her try to move in them, it was like watching a spider trying to cross hot coals. I've never seen like, anything blah. funnier in my fucking life. Oh my god, it's, yeah. But she, the thing is, she won't stop chewing her paws, so, you know. Yeah, um, and then at night, she, she keeps trying to chew the socks off, and she stops when we're watching her, mm-hmm. but at night when we want to go to sleep, we know that she's going to chew her paws and, and get the socks off, so she has to wear the comfy cone which is a soft fabric cone of shame. So she looks like a depressed Pixar lamp a lot of the time right now because, yeah, she this is this is the life that we've visited upon her. She uh, she keeps waking me up at three in the morning to softly whine at me because <laughs> she wants me to take the cone off and I have to tell her to go fuck herself. Father, how could you do this? 
<laughs> yeah, she's God. This poor dog. So let's um, let's jump into the movie we're doing. Which, by the way, side note uh, before we get started. So this is the first podcast I think we've done um, in the the midst of the quarantine because I did that episode for the Patreon with Foz uh, about uh, the Doom movie. But this is the first one we've done during the quarantine, and I thought to myself, like, throughout this quarantine, I've been wanting to watch movies about pandemics and about, you know, that kind of thing. But then it's also been like, hey, I've got a fucking great idea. What if we watched absolutely anything else other than that thing? Uh, But, you know, I I kind of, it would feel weird not doing a pandemic movie right now for this episode. Yeah, well, and also, you know, the, the thing about the movie that we picked for this week is that it's... It's a pandemic movie, but even more than that, it's a quarantine movie. So George Romero, uh, who did Night of the Living Dead uh, in 1969, um, waited nine years and then released this, which is, um, it's now, so it's it starts out with the, the zombie outbreak, presumably from Night of the Living Dead, has already gone sort of global. And at the, the outside of the thing, we start at like a, a TV station where it's sort of everybody losing their shit and scrambling around and trying to cover this. And there are talking heads uh, arguing with each other about the the outbreak and what we're what we're supposed to do about it, um, and one of the guys is trying to sort of talk zombie real politic, where he's like, "You gotta shoot him in the head." Like, there's the people they kill get up and kill. Like, he's trying to break it down, and uh, people in the studio are yelling at him, throwing things at him. Even um, all that he's trying to do is explain the literal situation, which is, by the way, a fucking great method of telling your viewer exactly what's happening is by having this guy trying in a panic to explain to everyone else, no, the dead get up and then they eat other people. And if your friend dies, they will rise again and you have to destroy the brain. Mm -hmm. You just get that all at once. It's just right out there. And I think this is a brilliant move because you get to see no one believing this man who's trying to explain the reality of the situation. Mm -hmm. Well, and especially now there's kind of an aliens uh, effect where like when you watch aliens and you're like, oh, there's a lot of cliches in this movie, huh? And it's like, well, yeah, because aliens created those cliches, and that's the reason we have them. Where with with Dawn of the Dead, this was the first movie of its kind, and the first story of its kind where, like, you know, the 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 zombie pandemic has gone global, and you have to destroy the brain, and you know, sort of the fact that the zombies are specifically just you know trying to eat people as a food source. Yeah, but they spend a lot of time in this movie explaining things where, you know, as, as I was... It's a long, it's a long fucking movie, by the way. It's yeah, uh, it 127 minutes. Um, and I kept on being like, why are we lingering so much on this detail? All you have to do is say one time, like, oh, they'll eat you. And then we know that they're the kind of zombie that eats people. Right. But I kept having to remind myself, oh, like, no one knew that. You know, no one had the shorthand for, oh, there's a zombie. You know you're going to have to destroy the brain. So this mm-hmm. guy spends, in the beginning, what felt to me like, you know, a hundred years, going over and over, they eat people for food, you have to destroy the brain. They eat people for food, you have to destroy the brain. Right, and, and this is not your brother, this is not your husband, this is an animal that you have to kill. I spent so much time thinking about how people in 1979 must have felt watching this movie, mm-hmm. how, how strange and different it must have been to think about the idea of the dead rising not being the people they were before in any regard, and then hunting you as a food source, um, yeah. and being unkillable if you don't destroy their brain. And I think it it's necessary to have that at the beginning, but I also had a hard time as a modern viewer. Yeah, in 2020, you're like, yeah, I fucking know what a zombie is, George. Jesus. <laughs> um, and so uh, the people, people at the news station, like, there's a guy who comes in in tight pants, and he flies a helicopter, and he looks... Ex- 
almost exactly like Hugh Laurie. Yeah, he really does look like a young Hugh Laurie. It's a problem. He looks very hot and forbidden in this first scene. Mm-hmm. Um, I definitely thought that he was going to be like the bad boy of the movie. Uh, yeah. Spoiler alert, not the case. Oh yeah, Stephen. No, now his name is Stephen. I always think of just think of him as Flyboy because that's what everyone else calls him in this movie. Um, he is a huge donger. He sucks so bad. He's such a weenie. Like he, he sort of, you know, he, he cuts a really cool looking profile. So you see him and you're like, oh fuck, ace troubleshooter on the scene. And then he just fucking slaps his dick against everything and cries where he's like, he, he's, he's bad at shooting. He's basically the only thing that he does well is fly the helicopter. Which is a valuable skill mm-hmm. as long as you need a helicopter flown. Um, but we'll, yeah. we'll get, we'll get to that later. There's a lot of yeah, good. Yeah good unpacking of the values and virtues of masculinity in this movie so yeah so we go from uh the the tv studio to a slum where there's been a report of an outbreak and it's sort of there's like a swat team with probably the biggest racist in the world yeah you've i've you know what this movie has great strong racist cop representation and i for one appreciate it i i value getting to see movies where cops uh, in the on the in the movie, act like how cops do IRL without mm. you know all the softening that we apply right now to try and keep them happy. This movie has a cop being like, "Hey, I've got some racial slurs, and here's some <laughs> things that I think about the people who I apply those racial slurs to, and those things that I think include that maybe I should use my police authority to murder them." Yeah, just murder murder the shit out of people. Like I think this was also in the late seventies. Uh, culturally, we were super into shitting on Puerto Ricans during that period as a country. Yeah, there's a lot of a lot of talk in this scene about Puerto Ricans, and they're saying the the phrase Puerto Rican as if it is in itself a racial slur. Yeah. And I was like, okay, I can tell that this guy's being racist, but all he's doing is calling this person Puerto Rican. So what did that mean back then? I'm guessing it was just that this guy really didn't like Puerto Ricans. Yeah, yeah. And and he so he bursts into the building and he's just like just murdering the shit out of people willy nilly. Just before he like he just like throws open a door to somebody's apartment and blows their head off immediately. Classic cop move. Love yeah. It. And he's he's so violent and racist that even the other cops are like, dude, fucking chill your like I'm also racist as hell, but you gotta chill. He's the HP Lovecraft of cops. Where <laughs> even his friends were like, hey, wow. Wow, buddy. You're a little you're a little racist there. Yeah. Little racist boy. Little, little racist boy. And so he 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 dies finally, thank God. Um, but we are introduced to two characters who are uh, husbands and they love each other, which is Roger and Peter. Um, Roger uh, is sort of a, a, a young cop who is, you know, he, he kind of gets the thousand yard stare during this experience. He's a blonde man. Mm-hmm. He's a He's a handsome blonde adult man it's like a golden retriever who yeah he's like he's here to try and do the right thing and oh no there's violence and that you know that that's hard that's it's like he, he's like if luke skywalker joined the police and then was just confused Ooh, yep. and yeah sort of farm boy mm-hmm. and he meets um peter my husband yeah played by uh the late great ken foray who is just in this role smoking hot an absolute treat. I mean, really just a a grim, tasty man. Yeah, yeah, grim and tasty. That, that's like the big, that's, that was like a discontinued <laughs> McDonald's burger. The grim and tasty. Yep, yep. Um, and they uh, find each other in the basement and have a meet cute where they point guns at each other and then go, ah, you're all right. Um, and they, so they, they, they get away on the helicopter with um, the lady who works at the news station and Flyboy. And honestly... So 
George Romero is so interested in the fact that, like, in a zombie apocalypse, the the real monster is people. Um, and sort of people being cruel to one another and using this as an excuse to, you know, be shitty and exploitative. I, it's, I don't know why it's such a month as an ex-smoker who, if a zombie apocalypse started happening, you best believe I would try to locate as many cartons of cigarettes as possible to get through this experience. Past Ryan would do that. Contemporary Ryan would be like, haha, I kicked the habit and don't want to do it anymore. That might be true. Um, <laughs> but, like, it's such a monstrous moment to me that, like, there's this uh, sort of cross-eyed gomer uh, on the roof of the, pl- of, the, of the place being like, yeah, we're going to go look at going to another place. Do you, any of you guys have a cigarette? And everybody on the helicopter's like, nope, sorry, pal. And so the guy kind of cross-eyes his way away. And then as, as it's lifting off, everybody lights up their cigarettes. <laughs> and I'm like, that's, you, you did that guy so dirty. You know, it's fucked up, but also I feel like if you if you've if you're one of the the nicotiners, oh sure, you're not giving a cigarette away right then. You need all the cigarettes you can get. Nick children, uh, nicotines, and nick adults. Nick at night. There we go. Um, and so they they lift off and they uh, come to uh, eventually they come to the Monroeville uh, shopping mall. So I wanna I wanna take a second to just. These four people are pretty much our cast now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so we talked about uh, Roger. We talked about Flyboy. We talked about how hot Peter is. He's mm-hmm. also, he's a black guy, which is, you know, not necessarily plot relevant, but deeply character relevant. And I think George Romero does a lot of great shit with that in this movie. Yeah, always. Like, he's um, so interested in that. Yeah. Um, there's, I mean, there's like, Romero's work with race and class are fucking beautiful in this movie yeah well and especially like i think his race is relevant because in the basement when they're pointing guns at each other this dude like the the blonde dude um roger was you know just part of a police force that was murdering the shit out of people of color in this slum and so it introduces this element where it's like all right so are you a racist cop who's gonna shoot me in the head uh, also a cop um because you know they're part of a swat team um and then we've the fourth person uh who you mentioned um, only as she was getting in the helicopter because at this point she doesn't have any characterization yet. Francine, yeah. who is the only woman, um, she is... A credit to her gender. <laughs> yeah, you know. She's, uh, at this point in the plot, most of her characterization is that she's the first one we see lighting up a cigarette. She She's the first one who says, no, I don't have a cigarette. She's the first person we see lighting one up. Mm-hmm. And she's in a relationship with uh, the helicopter pilot, Flyboy, who is the one who, like, comes to her and is like, we should go. I mean, he is very pretty. I don't blame her. Like, he, he might be a useless stonger, but he looks like a young Hugh Laurie. Yeah, no, I mean, listen, I would climb all over that, but... Absolutely. You know, we all make mistakes, and then they... We all, we all do stupid people. They come to light when we're in an apocalypse with those people. They really do. Um, so this is our cast. Francine, um, Peter, Roger, and Flyboy. Yeah. Um, and they, they come to the mall and they sort of, um, they, they get into the building and they kind of, what what they do is they sort of hollow out, uh, within this space, like a middle class household, basically like over the, like they, they, it's, uh, they, they find this living space in like the attic of the, the mall, basically that, you know, sort of far away from all the zombies in the mall, because the mall is so overrun by zombies that there's no fucking way you can just like take up in a bed shop in the mall. Um, and in the late 70s, what's also amazing about it, this is before malls were the thing we know them as now. Um, this was like at the beginning of that. And so it's like, hey, this looks like one of those newfangled shopping malls. And, you know, 
it's got um, all manner of stuff in it, but w- the big thing about it is that George Romero sort of looks dead into the camera and goes, the real zombies are consumers. It's really incredible. This is another point about this movie where I was like, yeah, we fucking get it, but I'm sure that when this movie came out, major motion pictures weren't sending this message that consumerism is a drain and that, you know, what what does capitalism make us into? Mm-hmm. Um, and also, I think you're right that uh, consumers at the time weren't as familiar with the structure of a shopping mall. So mm-hmm. this film spends a lot of time being like, look at all the things you can do at the mall. <laughs> it's a great ad for shopping malls, really. Incredibly, there's a guns and ammo store at the mall. Which, God bless. You know, great. And like a whole grocery store. Honestly, this does seem like a dope mall to be stuck inside of. Well, it's your one-stop shop. You get to go to Jimboree. You get some Yankee <laughs> candles. You get an AR-15. You get pretzels from the food court. You got everything you need for a, a nice a nice weekend out. Yeah. So um, they go to this attic. This attic is like full of survival supplies. But um, over the course of the film, they they really do transform it into a home. You get to see the passage of time reflected by three things. A calendar on the wall with X's on it, which I love. I fucking love mm-hmm. a calendar on the wall with X's on it. I have yeah. to show the passage of time. I love it. This this, this is a thing that Romero t- uh, does in Day of the Dead as well. Like, it's a continuing thing with him. We're like, because right now, especially we're in quarantine, how do we mark what day it is? Honestly, I've got no idea when I am. I can't believe it's still March right now. No, oh my god, it's, it's March thirty first as we're recording, and that seems unbelievable to oh me. Oh my god, it's still March. So that's one way we see the passage of time. One way we see the passage of time is the the living space getting changed. You know, it starts out as just being full of boxes of canned food. It's kind of like Animal Crossing in that way. You're just like building up a a, a personal space, and you can kind of monitor your progress by how nice the the living space is. Uh. Animal Crossing is a game that many people play and understand. Um, Absolutely. The, the third way that this movie uh, has us track the passage of time um, is that we get to see Francine's pregnancy progress. Uh, we find out pretty early on in the movie that she's pregnant. There's a discussion of whether or not to abort the baby. She has this great moment of, you know, sitting in the dark, listening to three men debate whether or not she should abort her the the fetus that she's got going on and then confronting one of them and saying oh i guess you're all deciding for me mm-hmm. um and she she keeps the baby um and we get to see her pregnancy slowly progress we get to see her go through morning sickness she doesn't do the kind of sitcom pregnancy mm-hmm. where one day you got a flat belly and the next day you're like boom well and she doesn't have cravings like go out to the gun store and get me a beretta <laughs> i need a beretta right now that classic pregnancy mood <laughs> Um, but we do get to see her slowly becoming more pregnant, um, mm-hmm. and it adds a tension that I haven't seen in a lot of zombie narratives that include pregnancy, because often mm-hmm. those involve, like, you're extremely pregnant, the baby's coming any day, now you have to prepare. This is in the early stages of a pregnancy, mm-hmm. and, you know, kind of like the f- probably first half of the pregnancy is what we get to see, and so I was watching this and going, oh, this whole time you're preparing this living space you have no idea how long you're going to be stuck in it, but things aren't looking good. Mm-hmm. And you know that in a few months, you're going to have to give birth right? and try to raise a baby in this space. And you know that you're going to have to try and deal with that. But right now you're having to deal with everything day to day. So like, what do you fucking do? How do you think about that? Right. Um, and I thought that, that was fascinating and really well done. It is fascinating and well done. Uh, the Dawn of the Dead remake from 2004 um, features a zombie baby. Because one of the characters gets pregnant and then gives birth to a zombie baby. It is not a very good movie. (laughs) 
Um, it is it is very bad. Um, but um, you know, and it, we go from that to okay. Now we've got blankets on the floor. Now we've got a mattress on the floor. Now we've got a bed. Now we've got a kitchen. Um, now we've got like some plants hanging from the ceiling and a record player. Um, and there's some commentary there in how these people are able to achieve middle class comfort only by isolating and protecting themselves during this crisis. Yeah. Well, and, and they, they sort of run amok in the mall where they're able to, and, and like, it's, I think you, you know, if, if it's in the late seventies watching, you know, these people just like ripping stuff off in the mall. And also, by the way, I can't believe I forgot this when they're in the helicopter and they're having a conversation, um, about sort of finding supplies and Flyboy is like, yeah, well, there's looters out there. And, uh, Peter just goes like, Hey, what the fuck do you think we are? Like, there's a crisis. We need supplies. Like, basically, you know, the, the social order has collapsed, and yes, I'm going to grab this bag of Wonder Bread and take it with me. Yeah, a, a really great moment um, that, you know, again, I think this is coming from a post-Hurricane Katrina mindset, but to me, that calls attention to the way that race and class inform our perspective on how people behave during a moment of crisis. <laughs> um, you know, poor people of color taking supplies that they need are looting, whereas middle-class white people taking supplies that they need are, what, foraging? Hunter-gathering? <laughs> like... I don't fucking... Yeah, yeah. They And, and so that... It being George Romero, which, you know, th these these dynamics are always in place. Basically, uh, so they're, they're running amok in the mall, and it's almost kind of shocking to watch them ripping off money, like, just sort of, like, they open a cash register, and there's, like, huge fucking drug dealer stacks of money, and they're like, huh, Look at that. And it doesn't really matter to them because what are they going to do with this? This running amok in the mall, by the way, comes along with killing zombies. So the, the zombies in this movie are slow. They're not very well designed because there wasn't a big stack of prior zombie film design to draw on. So they're mm -hmm. basically people with some green tint on their skin. Um, which is rough to look at on the black zombies because it's the exact same green tint that they use on the white zombies. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This um, movie doesn't know how to make black zombies yet. Yeah, um, and, you know, they're wandering around slowly. They're very stupid, so they're pretty easy to kill. And mm -hmm. um, the, the danger comes in, you know, not paying attention and them sneaking up on you or overwhelming you with their numbers. Mm -hmm. So we get, you know, montages of zombie killing and then all these dead zombies that need to get taken away and then we get to the the consumer montages so the the zombie killing part is you know kind of an actiony mm -hmm. fun time and then there's the work of moving the bodies of all the zombies out of the way which i was so fucking bothered by as someone in quarantine mm -hmm. these dumb assholes take all the zombies bodies and they find a big walk-in freezer in i assume like a restaurant in the mall mm -hmm. and they put the bodies in there along but with the walk-in freezer is full of meat and frozen food that they could eat for years. You could feed yourself for years off the amount of just meat that's in there. And they're stacking up zombie corpses. You were so pissed. I was so furious. I've been, you know, we've got a little apartment refrigerator. We don't have one of those big chest freezers. Mm -hmm. I stocked it up as best I could several weeks before the quarantine started because my anxious ass was already freaking out. Mm -hmm. And I've been trying to stretch that goddamn three-pound tube of ground beef as far as it'll go. And these guys have, like, an entire whole, like, slaughtered cow in there that they're just like, eh, whatever, put it behind the zombie corpses. You don't know what necrotic funk is going to waltz up off of these bodies and onto your porterhouse. Such a bad call. But they do go into the bank that's in the mall and take all the cash they can carry. 
They go into cash registers and take all the cash, which is such an, it's such a, um, it's such a fascinating commentary on what people will prioritize in a crisis. You know, people will take televisions Mm -hmm. because that's what our brains think is valuable and necessary for Mm -hmm. life. You know, you think like, what could I not get before that I can get now? Right. As opposed to what am I going to need? Um, and then they also go to this like deluxe fancy grocery store and take a bunch of fancy food out of there, like a big loaf of bread and like a some pate and caviar and stuff like that. Yeah, which I don't know that I would trust pate scavenged during the zombie apocalypse. Like, there's, yeah, yeah, it's it's mean triscuits. That's what I'm. That's what I'm. <laughs> that's what I'm eating for the entirety of, of the runtime. Um, you know, you got to keep regular during an apocalypse. You really listen. Just because there's zombies trying to eat you doesn't mean you shouldn't try to be regular. Triscuits will sweep you right out. They really will. Um, oh shit! By the way, uh, do you do you know the origin of the name of Triscuit crackers? No. I found this out from this week from a Twitter thread that uh, you know you think that they're that the name derives from the word biscuit, right? Because sure, it's would. only two letters off, and then you're like, oh, try maybe that relates somehow to the, the number three. Three biscuits. Is that what you think you're a fucking idiot? Shit. What it is is that they were advertised as the first cracker that was produced using electricity what the try is from electric they're electric crackers they're electriscuits electriscuits yeah that makes me so mad (laughs) why was that where they got the i you know good for them i fucking respect it if i'm living in a time when nothing is manufactured with electricity and i'm making crackers out of electricity i'm gonna tell everyone i'm gonna be like hey eat these fucking lightning (laughs) cheez-its i would eat lightning cheez-its you know they make you know they make lightning flavored vodka it tastes like pennies, like it, like it's it's like electricity flavored vodka. Anyway, it's uh, it was a mistake. So okay, so they they do this big capitalist rampage of like going through and getting all of the the fancy stuff that they couldn't get before. You know, mm-hmm. fur coats and jewels and stuff. Yeah, there's there's a scene in here where they are all standing around discussing what they're gonna do in these fucking huge huggy bear coats, and it's great. I respect it. That's the thing. It's like uh-huh. it's silly, but. You're safe, you're locked up in a shopping mall. I would do that too. Fuck it, yeah. The thing about this scene though is that they're doing it while uh Roger, that little blonde man, mm-hmm. is slowly dying from an infected zombie bite. Well, and th- and this happens because he he sort of they they're they're on an errand to move um these huge trucks in front of the entrances to the mall to prevent zombies from breaking breaking in. And Roger uh, has a close call during the run, which for some reason this is the thing that sort of like cracks his melon. And so he's sort of being reckless and crazy and yelling uh, yeehaw a lot. He he does a lot of yelling yeehaw. I have a feeling that this is a thing where they're like, just do the scene, we'll let the camera run, you know, and then we'll trim it later. And then they were like, you know what? We're going to keep this. Well, um, and, and he yees his last haw, basically, because he... Uh, is a- acting reckless, and the one thing that kind of gets him to calm down is his husband uh, Peter saying, "Like, listen, you're not just playing with your life; you're playing with mine." We should probably clarify for readers that these are not in the film literal husbands. Just yes, they are. we ship it. No, they're they're they are legally wed in the in in the state of the Monroeville <laughs> Shopping Center. <laughs> yeah, no, they're they're not actually married, but like they. You know what? The dynamics in this movie, they love each other. They genuinely love each other, and they have each other's backs as much as possible. And you are right that the thing that makes Roger 
stop yelling yee-haw and putting himself at risk is that Peter says, you're playing with my life too. Yeah, but alas, he, he gets he gets bitten pretty bad. Now, we should also point out the effects in this movie are done by the immortal Tom Savini. Incredible. The, the effects are fucking phenomenal. Yeah, like the, the scene where Roger is getting his fucking egg... Egg? Excuse me. Getting his leg at by a zombie? Getting his egg. Getting his egg let. You gotta get that egg let. Gotta let the egg. Let me egg. Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) Tapping the window, let me egg. (laughs) Um, But he, so he gets chomped, and then it's like, oh, no. And at this point, as a viewer, in 1978, you don't know that if someone gets chomped by a zombie, that this has punched their ticket. Right. You just, I mean, you see that, and you think, well, that's a pretty bad wound. Sucks, man. We don't want it to get infected. Hopefully he'll be okay. Mm-hmm. So for the remainder of his time in the movie, he's getting carried around in a wheelbarrow, and that includes that big hedonistic consumer binge that they all go on. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's honestly really sweet because like so his brain is turning into uh, cottage cheese during this, where you know he's in the wheelbarrow and like as he's dying, like he sort of he sort of reverts to sort of a baby brain. A little bit, where he's sort of, like, fascinated by a viewfinder and eating, like, mustard straight out of the jar, which is just what I do on, like, a Thursday night, so. Yeah, he definitely regresses. So, uh, you know, he's he's not doing so good and, you know, is really uh, devolving with this zombie bite, regressing, and also being given a lot of morphine by Francine, who somehow knows how to give him shots of morphine well the thing is that her character type is woman and so she's good oh, at, she's true. good at cooking nursing uh-huh. you know uh-huh. all, all being manner of, pregnant being pregnant right yeah but she doesn't care for this she doesn't like that her character type is woman and she yells at the men saying you're not gonna leave me alone without a gun anymore and i want to learn how to fly that helicopter yeah i think that i want to fly that helicopter inspiration strikes her not because she's aware of the danger that Flyboy is in, but because mm-hmm. she really kind of wants to murder him, which she's right about. Yeah, he's a bit of a dildo. Um, and she definitely does announce, like, I'm not going to be you guys' fucking den mother. Mm-hmm. But the problem is that the narrative kind of makes her be the den mother anyway in a lot of ways. I think, you know, maybe maybe the meaning of that has changed for us a little bit because mm-hmm. the feeling I get from the movie is that it's, you know... Yeah, of course, I'm the woman. Of course, I'm going to cook and be the nurse to everybody and, mm. you know, make this place look nice. But I also want to know how to do some some things mm-hmm. to do. Um, so they don't really teach her how to shoot. She kind of has to teach herself how to shoot. But um, she does get to learn here how to fly the helicopter. Yeah. Um, and it's kind of, you know, and it's funny because, like, Flyboy sort of is reluctant to teach her at first. And I think it's because... This is the sole thing he brings to the table. Yeah, he does not have a skill no. other than this. No, because um, Roger and Peter are the best shoot guys, and they shoot so good. They shoot good, they run good, they can use their brains to think until <laughs> Roger gets bitten. They are not, uh, what, do you, what do you call them, stupid assholes? Yeah, uh, but Flyboy, the only thing he's got is that he can fly this helicopter, and, you know, it takes him, like, 10 minutes to teach Francine how to fly the helicopter, and then he's completely redundant. Yeah, he's... Oh, boy. Um, but so during these flying lessons, um, a, a, a gang, really an army of uh, bikers and ne'er-do-wells and sort of apocalyptic uh, loiterers, um, and they've all... Which, by the way, their aesthetic is fucking on point. Really great mustaches. Oh, so many mustaches. One of them is played by Tom Savini. 
who I feel like you look at that face, he looks like a goblin, and immediately you're like, oh, you do makeup and effects. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but so they see <coughs> they see the helicopter landing on the roof of the mall, and they're like, huh, would you look at that? Um, and they kind of get on the the, the radio, uh, which they um, the survivors have a have a little ham radio in their living space, and the bikers are sort of like, yeah, play. Can can you let us in? There's only five of us. And then all the dudes in the background start yelling, going, Rah! and then, you know, so they, they uh, attack the mall um, on motorcycles, which I got to tell you, watching people riding through a mall on motorcycles. Very satisfying. With like swords and shit. Very satisfying. Yeah, they've got swords, they've got guns, they've got a lot of motorcycles. Um, but in order to get into the mall, they, they break some doors down, which of course lets all the zombies in. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the, the we get to see the motorcyclists go on like... A super long rampage. It's a lot. There's like, this was one of those scenes where I was like, okay, yeah, we get it, George. But also, seeing motorcyclists destroy a mall, Mm -hmm. probably pretty new for people who are watching this when it came out, probably pretty jarring. Mm -hmm. And also seeing these motorcyclists, instead of fighting and fearing the zombies, disrespecting them. They, you know, they're like smashing pies in their faces, which by the way, where are you getting a pie? It's the <laughs> they brought, fucking they brought end their of own the world. Pie. Eat that pie. <laughs> where are you going to get more pie? Well, you got pie, you got pie money in the post-apocalypse. You could just find pies that. anywhere. Yeah. And, you know, they're stealing, they're, they're, they are what we think of as looting. They're just destroying stuff. And, you know, a guy sees a TV and smashes it with a big hammer because he can't watch it anymore. Well, yeah, you know, you, you really got to make your own fun. And and these guys are, yeah, just sort of like pieing the zombies and slapping them on the ass and sort of hooting and hollering through the mall. And they also, um, for whatever reason, uh, Flyboy decides he's going to show this enormous army uh, of murder bikers what's what and tries fucking with them and then quickly gets shot. Which, good. Yeah, yeah. Good, he should get shot. He's so stupid. I feel like... Flyboy getting shot, that's just him dying of natural causes. It was either yeah. that or being throttled to death. He goes down with a pistol that he's not very good at shooting, and instead of just hiding up in the attic to wait for the bikers to be finished looting the mall and then leave, which mm-hmm. is what their plan is, right. he comes down and draws their attention by shooting at them, and then Peter tries to save him by also shooting at them, and basically the bikers are like, well, we're going to go you know, fuck, up, fuck you up for trying to shoot us right uh and then the problem is that the bikers let in all of the fucking zombies and they quickly get overwhelmed by zombies and then the the other half of the bikers kind of you know peace out of this entire thing yeah you either get eaten by all the zombies that you let into the mall or you leave them all my favorite death in this movie Mm -hmm. there's so many good ones by the way so many good ones um one that is, like, emotionally affecting is when uh, Roger finally finishes dying and comes back as a zombie. That's, like, a very effective scene where, you know, Peter is waiting for him to die so that he can put him down. And it's, you know, mm-hmm. oh, impactful. Man. And the, the precise opposite of that death is one of these motorcyclists, while the zombies are eating the other bikers, he sits down at a blood pressure machine <laughs> in the mall and yeah. puts his arm in the cuff to let the thing read his blood pressure and then a bunch of zombies come over and eat him and instead of running he keeps his arm in the cuff taking the blood pressure and they eat him and then the blood pressure machine reads zero over zero because it gets ripped he he gets his arm fucking ripped off so you don't got any blood pressure anymore well here's the thing cholesterol is no fucking joke Uh, even in the zombie apocalypse you got to watch your blood pressure you got to keep an eye on it you got to try and 
not be stressed. This is my yeah. favorite thing, yeah. by the way, that, you know, I had, like, a phone call with a, a doctor who I've been talking to lately, and, you know, I'll have, like, teleconference things with my therapist, and they keep on asking me, what are you doing to manage your stress right now? And I'm like... I don't know. Drinking? What? what yeah, are you doing? yeah. What, what? Drinking and admiring my chickpeas? What the fuck is there to do? Like, do you have the do you have an answer to not being stressed out right now? Yeah. Well, it's either that. Uh, listen, you know what I'm doing to manage my stress? Lo-fi hip hop beats to relax slash study to on YouTube. That's it. That's the only consolation we have. And this was 1978. They didn't have that. Yeah. Um, it was a dark time. Yeah. Getting his arm up. You know what that was? That was entirely. I feel like Tom Savini looking at the uh, the available things in the mall that they had to work with and saw this blood pressure testing machine and went, I have an idea. And then needing to work that in. And, which is fair. You know, sometimes you just got to find a way to shoehorn in the blood pressure machine. Yeah. Uh, and before all this, and, and like you were saying, like the most em- emotionally affecting death in this is um, while Roger is on death's doorstep and he's like whispering to Peter, like, don't let me turn into one of those things. I'm going to try not to get back up and walk around but you need to shoot me if that happens and make sure that that doesn't happen. And so he sort of puts him to to bed and there's a a blanket over his face, which (sighs) death means something in this movie, I think. Like, human life has worth and, you know, deaths actually matter. Um, And then, you know, the the blanket slowly falls away from his face and he's green-faced and Peter has to kill him. And during this death, it fucking destroys me. And I never noticed this before until this most recent watch. In the background, you've got sort of the talking heads on TV sort of talking theory at this point because everything has gone, you know, like the camera is jerky. It's clearly being held by some whoever was nearby enough to carry the camera. And in the background of uh, Peter having to kill his best friend, you've got talking heads talking, you know, about what to do about the zombie outbreak. And the the talking heads in that moment are talking about... um oh, we should nuke the cities, we should start eating the zombies, mm-hmm. like, because we're going to run out of food, so we should eat them, and they're eating us anyway, and also, who cares if people in the big cities die, we should drop bombs. Right. Um, you know, all these very uh, dire, logical solutions to a problem that logic and emotion can't really unite in. Yeah. Now, I, I do think that you're right that death means something in this movie, but I also think that this movie has a lot to say about whose death matters. Mm-hmm. Because in the scene with the bikers running amok in the mall, um, you know, Peter starts killing them. He's, right. he's shooting at them to try and get them to leave. And he's not shooting to scare them. He is shooting to kill, and he succeeds yeah. in killing a lot of them. We see, you know, them getting ripped apart by zombies, and we also see them getting killed by a person. Mm-hmm. And I think that the movie has some stuff to say about whose whose lives we need to protect during mm-hmm. an apocalypse. Um, and I, I I, think I'm probably missing some like layers of nuance here because I'm noticing that a lot of the people who deserve to get protected are the people who we think of as respectable now. Right. Um, you know, people who are striving for middle-class comfort, whereas the people who are have never been striving for that are the ones who deserve to die. At the same time, mm-hmm. you've got, you know, kind of the flip side of that, that the people who just want things to be comfortable and okay are the ones who we should protect, and the people who want to come and ruin stuff and use uh, a 
catastrophe like a zombie apocalypse as an excuse to exercise that impulse Mm -hmm. are ones who we shouldn't bother trying to preserve. Right. Well, because, I mean, even as a viewer, you see the bikers, you know, sort of running amok, and you think to yourself, eh, fuck them. Like, you see uh, Peter just shooting, like, plugging, you know, Tom Savini and and killing him, and you're kind of like, eh, fuck him. He had it coming. Because they're they're mean guys, you know? They're not trying to work together with anybody to get through this. Instead, they're hoarding... Lysol wipes. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, they, they are using this as an excuse to be their worst selves. It's a lot. And so, um, during all of this, uh, Flyboy gets turned uh, gets attacked and eaten by zombies and, like, turned into a zombie. In a very satisfying scene yeah. where he, a dumbass, gets into an elevator, uh-huh. which you know during an emergency you're not supposed to ever get into an elevator. He gets into an elevator and a bunch of zombies get into the elevator and they eat him. And it's just, it was just great. I was so happy. I was clapping my fucking hands like a seal. I yeah. was like, get him. Because he, he, this entire movie, he just keeps putting other people in danger. Um, unfortunately, because zombies in this movie retain a little piece of their prior habits, like, mm-hmm. you know, they, they do the things that they sort of habitually did as, as humans. He Like consumerism. He then turns into a zombie and walks directly toward the entrance to the hideout. Um, and leads all the other zombies there, and uh, they're, you know, coming up the stairs to the that little attic, so the biker threat is gone, but the zombie threat is now increased. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, they go up to the hideout, and Peter turns to Francine and says, go take the helicopter and get out of here. I don't want to leave. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going down with them all. Like, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm going to plug myself in the head. Um, and he, now, which by the way, if you're a zombie, eating Flyboy's brains, it has to be like eating a bag of pork rinds. You know, tasty, but ultimately there's no substance there. Yeah, it's like it's like cup of noodles. Yeah. Um, but so uh, she, you know, tearfully sort of uh, hightails it up to the roof. She knows how to fly the helicopter, so that's good. And uh, Peter, um, the zombies are breaking through the door and uh, they're about to crash their, their, their hideout. And he has a gun to his head. Which, and now, the thing that he does, uh, there's a there's a, a version of this movie, like the initial version, he just does it. Like, there's there's a version of this movie where um, Peter shoots himself in the head and dies. And she gets away and sort of flies off. But the version, like the theatrical version and the version that we're all, that we've all seen, um, he has, he sort of decides, mm, actually, fuck it. And he quickly shoots at the zombies and kind of fights his way up to the roof and um, gets into the helicopter, and the two fly away, and he's like, how much fuel do we have? And she's like, not much. And he's like, okay. And it's, 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 it's kind of like the ending to the thing a little bit, where they acknowledge the futility of what's going on, and they're just sort of like, ah, well, I guess we'll see how this shakes out. You know, you get to see these two people who've spent this entire movie trying so hard to build some space in which they can be okay Mm -hmm. and frankly if nobody had fucked with them they probably would have been fine until the point at which zombies you know ran out of a food source and died out Mm -hmm. it would have taken a while but they had all the supplies that they needed they were tucked away they were safe they were even becoming comfortable they had a living room set up with a nice couch like Mm -hmm. they had they had all the creature comforts that right now we're kind of scared of losing, like, booze and candy. Like, they had everything they needed to just ride it out. Mm -hmm. But, and this is a a thing that we kind of brought up a little bit earlier, the thing that brings them down, I think, in this movie is 
the form of masculinity and indulgent performance mm -hmm. that moves Roger to start yelling yee-haw all over <laughs> the place and taking risks. As soon that, as you're yelling yee-haw, it's all downhill. That moves Flyboy to, instead of just hiding from the bikers and being like, all right, they're not going to find us, just let them do their thing. Right. That moves him to go down with a pistol and try to take on this entire biker gang on his own because he's insulted that they're invading his space. Mm -hmm. um, that moves these bikers even to, to decide that they have to destroy stuff and... You know, like pie zombies. That's all performance. It's all a, a performance of aggression and power. Yeah, and it's like we're so not scared that we're not taking this seriously. We're pieing the zombies. We're you know sort of bouncing baseballs off of their heads. Whatever. It's it's like the fucking Republicans right now who are getting together on golf courses. I was reading about this this morning. Oh. Golf courses are seeing an increase in business right now because so many Republicans are like, no, I'm not gonna get. I'm not going to be a liberal coward and practice social distancing. So they're like more people coming to golf courses, all crowding onto carts together, making a show, shaking hands because they're going, I'm not scared of this virus. And it's like, Hey, what are you, know you what? fucking thinking? We really need to make it so that, you know, we, we tell them like, you know, what would really own the libs is if you all fucked in standing water. <laughs> Just find find a nice puddle. You know, coughing into each other's mouths to own the lips. Absolutely, just funnel funnel coughs into each other's mouths. Yeah, like so much of it is like dick wagging. Yeah, like they could have they could have had it all. They could have. Although, I mean, the the reason the bikers found them was because uh, Francine wanted to know how to fly a helicopter. Mm -hmm. um, but even that's not the thing that ultimately fucks them over. Like they could have just hung out in the attic and waited it out for the bikers to come in and wipe their hands all over the furniture and pie some zombies and fuck off again with supplies. But. Yeah, I think I think that there's a, a reality in which everybody could have survived this, but every time somebody goes, no, you know what, I'm going to go be a tough guy. I'm going to prove that I'm not scared. I'm mm -hmm. going to, you know, I'm going to show off how much better I am than this crisis. That's when people die. Yeah. Well, and that's what it also is, is that, like, what, what the survivors are doing is trying to maintain a sense of what they had before everything went to shit with building the space. Um, I think they, they make their own kind of family, the four of them. Like, they're trying to maintain, and it's four people, like, they're trying to maintain the nuclear family when the rest of everything else has already fucking fallen apart. And it's ultimately unsustainable. And that's, you know, that's like one of the biggest tragedies here is that you see these, the two survivors of that nuclear family having to leave with nothing. They don't get to keep any of that middle-class comfort, which is no. sort of the, the thing that you see in a lot of contemporary zombie movies when someone who has a happy middle-class life mm -hmm. all of a sudden has it torn apart and has to become a survivor. But these people just managed to scrape that together out of the apocalypse and then yeah. have to lose it, which is really heartbreaking, especially as someone who, you know... I've been nesting really hard the past two months as I've been freaking out about this virus. I've uh -huh. been like, we have to make our home as comfortable and, and welcoming and nurturing as possible. And the idea of... Because we got to be here all the time. Yeah. The idea of having this suddenly taken away right now is like terrifying to me because it's the one area of stability that we've managed to build. Yeah. Well, and I think thus far, like, I don't know, our neighbors have been really nice during this. Like, I think we've, you know, I... I, I wonder, do you, all right, do you think that George Romero's take on humanity is cynical or hopeful in this? I think it's realistic. I yeah. think he's got 
a view of humanity that is actually like surprisingly nuanced for zombie fiction. I find that a lot of zombie apocalypse fiction doesn't appeal to me because it takes such a pessimistic view of humanity and yeah. says everyone's just going to be like those bikers. It's going to be Mad Max out there. Mm-hmm. I think that's a very... Um, I think that that's a perspective that props up a lot of like fascist individualism yeah, and yeah. masculine ideas of patriarchal importance. Like, oh, I'm the I'm gonna be the dad of the world because I have the most bullets or whatever. Well, yeah, and like, how many dudes have you known who have been like, I'm the best shoot guy, and in a zombie apocalypse, everyone's gonna come and hang out with me and tell me that my karate moves are cool. Listen, I gotta tell you watching all the people talk right now about how we're seeing what humanity really does during a crisis uh-huh. is making me so fucking smug because I my my long time ago ex um, was one of those guys. He had, like, tactical rope bracelets. He Why? bought guns and practiced shooting. He had all these, like, like multi-tools, and he was like, well, in a zombie apocalypse, you're going to want me around because I know how to use this tactical bracelet to make a snare or whatever and i was always like i don't think i'm gonna want you around during any kind of crisis event and right now he is one of those guys who's probably posting on facebook asking how to cook rice Um, (laughs) listen i you know what the most useful thing i would do in in a zombie apocalypse die very quickly and you can use my body for food or a sandbag oh also for warmth also warmth. i could cut you open and climb inside of you because i'm really little so i could like well, that's what you've been wanting to do for years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I could finally have it. Pilot me like a mech suit. At long last. And I thought they smelled bad on the outside. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah. I think George Romero, although honestly his class politics, in uh, Night of the Living Dead, he was like, oh man, maybe the cops aren't actually out to help us. By Land of the Dead, he is straight up murder the rich, take their things kill everyone hell yeah like he i i love getting to see the radicalization of george romero in real time like that movie like i i've seen movies that are subtle with their uh allegory and they're fucking cowards and george romero was a national treasure um what's also amazing oh Oh, i was just gonna say i think he i mean i think he's doing some radical class politics things in this movie Mm -hmm. just by showing people destroying a hub of consumerism just by showing You know, I mean, right now, m- me and all my internet friends talk about how we should tear down casinos and stuff. But in the late 70s, early 80s, mm-hmm. capitalism was like the gift. It was like, we did it. This is so important and it's crucial and we have to maintain it and it's going to hold society together and it's progress, right? right? Like, the shopping mall was the the rocket ship yeah. of the 1980s. And showing that becoming irrelevant, being empty, being overrun by the living dead, and mm-hmm. then being something that you can just kind of go take if you want it, Yeah, I feel like was pretty radical for the time that it came out. Definitely. And I think also, you know, for the late 70s, like this was during OPEC and, you know, the recession, there was, you know, and like the reason that I think Reagan was able to get elected was because everybody was like, hey, I liked having the nice cheeseburgers, not these regular cheeseburgers and every like you know reagan his his campaign had like all the substance of a shampoo commercial but it really spoke to people who were spooked because we were worried that the wheels were falling off this thing mm-hmm. like the the dollar wasn't as strong you know and and so i think there is that to me is in the mix for dawn of the dead that you know late 70s this is him going like yeah it's all falling apart motherfuckers and here's what that looks like um and yeah, yeah, and I think the thing that I like about George Romero also is that he just sort of points at every structure meant to keep us safe, 
and is like, they're not looking out for us. The only thing we can really depend on is each other. It's a great movie. It's it's long and it feels slow from mm-hmm. a contemporary perspective. But honestly, if you're looking for something to watch that tells you where all the zombie stuff we have now came from, I mean, this is the source code. Yeah. Yeah, this is, this is the boilerplate for that. Um, so, all right. So looking at the list, uh, at number 21, we have Fright Night 2011, which is a movie that smacks ass and we love it very much. That is a perfect film and I will die on that hill absolutely so between fright night 2011 uh, at number 21 and dawn of the dead uh which which do you want to give the edge to oh i think definitely fright night i would put yeah. dawn of the dead much further down the list just because again it is very slow mm-hmm. um and this isn't a list for like uh the criterion collection this is a list for people who are watching movies now yeah i would put it further down i, I mean mm-hmm. i would put it after the Lost Boys, which is at number forty. Really? Mm-hmm. God damn! All right. I thought I thought that the Lost Boys had more movement. It still had a lot to say. Um, well, it was definitely snappier. Yeah. Like, well, and and I think that's what it is. Is like I I've seen Dawn of the Dead so many times that I had forgotten, by the way, how fucking hectic those first fifteen minutes are. It is so much. Like we, I kept having to turn the volume down because it was just like it goes from people screaming in a studio to a riot happening in a slum, and. It honestly, that happens, and then it's very slow. Yeah, the first fifteen minutes are total chaos, and I kept turning to you and being like, "What's happening? Who's that man? Who's that man?" Which, by the way, "Who's that man?" is my favorite game that we play <laughs> when somebody's on screen. Um, but yeah, wow, all right. So, Lost Boys at number forty. We're gonna go down. Um, Scream at number forty-five. Mm, I would prefer to watch Scream again over watching this, but I think that this yeah. movie is a better movie than Scream. Yeah, I feel like Friday Night Test, I would also rather watch Scream if I've got a pizza and a thing of mug root beer. Um, have you seen Evil Dead 2? Okay. I I feel comfortable actually putting this above Scream at number 45 and below Evil Dead 2 because Evil Dead 2, I think, also uh, was deeply influential in its own right for horror because it was Sam Raimi sort of stretching out and doing... I don't know, doing techniques with filmmaking that people are still using right now where, like, he was broke as shit, and he was like, okay, wait, I'm going to cover this sawhorse in duct tape, cover that with, like, Vaseline, put mount the camera on that, and move it down the thing for this effect that I want to do in a way that I feel like, I don't know, I, I respect it so much, and I feel like I would rather just watch Evil Dead too. So I feel good uh, putting Dawn of the Dead, uh, the, the, the original Dawn of the Dead, at number 45 uh, above Scream and below Evil Dead 2. All right. Hell yeah. Uh, Sarah, uh, do you have any uh, projects or books or anything that you would like to plug? Yeah. Um, last time we recorded, I had just finished releasing at least one book. Uh, my, my recent books that I have out are uh, Upright Women Wanted, which is a novella about queer anti-fascist spy librarians on horseback in the near future fascist-controlled Southwest, and my YA debut, When We Were Magic, also just came out uh, about a group of teen girl best friends who have to work together to hide a body, and also they're gay. Um, that's my that's my most recent stuff that's out. You can also subscribe to my Substack to get recipes, essays, short fiction, and... Um, whatnots at www.sarahgailey.substack.com hell yeah um rank and vile listeners you can find us uh permanently and abidingly shitposting on twitter at rank and vile cast 
Um, we have a Tumblr at Just Rank and Vile and an Instagram at Just Rank and Vile. If you have a movie that you'd like us to do, uh, we're going to be doing a request episode soon. Uh, you're going to want to send that request to either uh, our ask box on Tumblr or send it to rankandvilecast at gmail.com. Um, please, nobody request Diary of the Dead by George Romero. Uh, I would rather shave my eyeballs with a rock than watch that again. Um, we are uh, on pretty much every platform. We're on Stitcher. We're on Last.fm. We are pretty much everywhere. Um, but barring that, that is about all I've got. Have a good week, folks.